Good morning. I tell you what, sometimes you just have to sit near the front so that while we're singing, you can hear everybody else's voices just washing over you. <laughs> that was pretty powerful this morning. We'll see if I have any uh, vocal cord left to, <laughs> to speak the word to you today. But I tell you what, I'm glad you're here. And even if you had to snooze the alarm a couple times this morning, even if you had to drag yourself out of bed, even if somebody else had to drag you here this morning, I'm glad that you are here, and I pray that God is giving you something good this morning. I know he already has for me. I'll tell you what, I've, I've been dragged to church before. Have you been dragged to church before? <laughs> the, the knowing laughter, right? <laughs> I'll be honest with you, that there was a whole phase of my life where I was pretty much only at church if somebody dragged me, whether it was my parents on Sunday morning, uh, my sister, or even a guy named Ron. Ron was one of the youth leaders at my church, and it just so happened that when I was in, I think it was, I think it was eighth grade, all three of my best friends at church moved away the same summer. Now, when you're like 13, 14, why go to church anymore, right? Probably a wrong perspective on my part, but it felt like it was empty there, and so I didn't feel like going anymore, but Ron stuck with me. Ron would pick me up every single Wednesday afternoon at my house and try to bring me to youth group. He would call me up during the week and he'd say, Hey, Drew, what are you doing? You want to go grab some Wendy's? He'd pick me up. He'd take me to Wendy's. And then, if he could talk me into it, he would take me over to youth group. He basically would, would drag me there. And I regret to inform you that there were times where I let him pick me up. I let him take me to Wendy's. I ate chicken nuggets on his dime. And then I had him drop me off back at home. But Ron didn't give up on me. Ron kept calling. Ron kept checking in. Ron kept bringing me to Wendy's. And I owe a lot to Ron because of that. Because he maintained his attitude towards me even when I was ready to give up. When I wasn't counting for youth group at all, Ron said, this is a person who is worth my time because God loves them and I want to do something that helps reignite Drew's curiosity toward God. You know, that's really what Paul has been speaking to Titus about throughout this letter. This is the last week that we're spending in the book of Titus in our series, Clear and Present Danger. And that's one of the themes that has kind of been woven all the way through as Paul is trying to make sure that Titus understands that if he wants to create a curiosity toward God in the people around him, He's got to develop a heart that is characterized by zeal for good works. He's got to have a heart that is willing to do what it takes for other people because there were false teachers all around him and they would be known by their bad works, but by the good things that Paul was calling Titus and the church to do, we manifest the love of Jesus to the people around us. That we become a proof of who God says he is and who Jesus says he is by the way that we live our lives toward other people. And as Paul is bringing this letter to a close, if you've got your Bible, we're looking at chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 8, which we touched on a little bit last week, and we're going to go through to the end, because I want you to hear a phrase that Paul uses twice as he's wrapping this up and trying to make sure that Titus gets the point. He says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. 
But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject the divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Now, some of us spend the winter in Florida, but Paul's going down to Nicopolis. He says, send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you, greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. So in verse 8 and verse 14, Paul uses the same phrase, maintain good works. He wants to get it in there twice as this letter comes to a close, kind of bookending our passage today to make sure that Titus has heard these words and that this is the thing that sticks in his mind as he folds the letter back up and puts it away. Maintain good works. I play basketball every Saturday morning with a group of guys. And it's, it's good. I love the exercise. It's fun. I'm not as good as some of the guys there. But there's one guy that I play with named Pep. Now, Pep is a little bit older than I am. And most of the guys that we're playing with are a little bit younger than I am. And so I'm feeling pretty good already if I can, like, mostly keep up with them. But I remember when I first met Pep just thinking, man, like, his shot is still smooth. His conditioning is still good. And he can run with these guys that are 19 or 20. And I've noticed that every time somebody new comes to our basketball, they notice this about Pep. And they say, Pep, how do you do it? He tells them the exact same thing every single time. I just never stopped playing. You know, he just never stopped by being there every Saturday, making sure that he kept running, kept playing basketball. Then he keeps his conditioning good. He keeps his shot good just simply by maintaining it, by continuing to do it, being purposeful about it. And I think that's really what Paul is saying to Titus and saying to us this morning, that we must train to maintain good works that create curiosity toward God. We must train to maintain good works that create curiosity toward God. You can go ahead and bring up the next slide there. See, that's really the mentality that we've got to have. That that good works aren't just something that happens on their own. And, And I'll just say this for myself, but if you're like me at all, even having been washed by the blood of Christ and living in His grace on a daily basis, I know that I'm still human. And there are still the the selfish parts of me, or just the parts of me that aren't paying attention, that miss opportunities to show God's love to other people, to show God's generosity to other people, to show God's kindness to other people. So it's not as simple for Paul to just say, hey, tell everybody I said, hi, Titus, it was great talking to you. Keep up the good works. He says, we've got to train. We've got to do it on purpose. So here's our training regiment that we're going to look at this morning. As we maintain good works that create curiosity toward God, we need to resolve, to reject And to repeat, resolve, reject, repeat. The word that Paul is using here that is translated maintain really means to undertake resolutely, to practice diligently, to maintain the practice of. And so our first step is to resolve to grow in good works. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I hear the phrase good works, I get a little bit nervous because we like to debate good works a lot, don't we? And we like to talk about, well, it's, it's not works, it's grace, right? 
And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 are verses that, that we often speak that remind us that we are saved by grace and that we need to maintain our focus on grace. You can bring up the next slide. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But I'll bet you know Ephesians 2, 10 as well. And often, even though we know these, we don't put them together. And so I want you to listen to this for a moment. This is also Paul writing in Ephesians. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But look at what he says right after that. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love the way he puts these two pieces together because as soon as he lets you know your good works do not save you, you have to get that clear. You have to get it through your head. But because God has saved you, he has good things for you to do to show the world who he really is. You see that? All of this is based on who God is and on the work of Jesus Christ. He did not save us because we are good, but because he saved us, we can be good. I had a, a problem with my furnace. Turns out it needs to be replaced. So I had the HVAC guy over this week. And as we were looking at the furnace, you know, you're just making, making small talk. And he asked me what you do for a living. And so I told him, well, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor. And so I spend a lot of my time, you know, studying scripture and trying to help other people understand it. And, and you could tell this kind of shifted the way he was approaching the conversation because he, he immediately told me, well, you know, I'm not really a, a spiritual person. I'm not really a religious person. I, I don't necessarily believe in God. And then the next thing he said was, but I try to do a lot of pro bono work, you know, for like veterans or, or for people who, who can't really afford it. I thought that was so interesting. Like, like, we were just talking, but as soon as he found out that I was religious, he wanted to make sure that I knew that he tried to be a good person. You know what I mean? And often we think that way. Sometimes we don't even realize that we're thinking that way. But we're trying to be just good enough that somebody somewhere will, will approve of us. You know, give us a little stamp that says, well, hey, I mean, you know, he's a good person. And that's great. I mean, I think that what he's doing for other people, that, that's awesome. But outside of Christ, it's empty. If we believe that we are saved by our good works, then our good works are empty. But if we understand that we are saved by the blood of Jesus, that we have victory in Jesus that we sang about this morning, then the good things that we do towards others are an outpouring of the love of Christ in us. You know, when you think about the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kind, all that stuff, God is pouring into you. That's his kindness to you that it would overflow to other people. That then they look at you and say, okay, so you're a follower of Christ and you love your wife this way and, and you're patient with your kids that way and you did that favor for your neighbor even though he's a jerk? Like maybe there is something different about your God and it creates that kind of curiosity. And so we need to practice this diligently, do it on purpose, resolve to grow in good works. It really becomes a spiritual discipline, just like reading your Bible and spending time in prayer. In fact, when you read your Bible, that's where God tells you what kind of good works to do, how to do these things. And when you pray, that gives God time to put into your heart who it might be that he has for you to serve.
As followers of Christ, we want to be people who are willing to severely inconvenience ourselves for the sake of others to help them draw just a little bit closer to God. But we have to be able to do it without an agenda. You see, if there's an agenda, like, I'll do you a favor if you come to church on Sunday, then people just feel like a a project, you know? They just feel like you're, you're hiding out, you're trying to trick them like a bait and switch. And again, I'll confess, I fell into this a few weeks ago. One of the guys I play basketball with forgot his basketball in the gym at church. Saturday afternoon, he texts me, hey man, can you grab my ball and give it back to me next week? I said, well, I got your ball. You could pick it up at church tomorrow. He didn't come. (laughs) And that probably wasn't the right way to go about it. I I probably could have said, hey man, how about I meet you for dinner and I'll bring you the ball and we'll just hang out. You know? Because that's, if you you think about it, Christ sacrificed for us with no agenda. Nothing, I mean, you think about what, what, what was in it for Jesus. He was already king. He already had the world in his hands. He already had the power. He he did it for love. He did it for us. And he showed us who God is. That's the way that we can live towards other people. And if we resolve to grow in the good works, we resolve to maintain it that way. That's why 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, the picture here is that if we go into our daily lives without spending time in God's word or spending time with God, then we're just not ready. We're going to miss opportunity after opportunity because our hearts haven't been made sensitive by time with God. But if we dive into the word, if we spend our time in there getting trained, getting ready, then we'll see God do amazing things through our lives. It kind of reminds me of something that uh, I discovered that Jack Nicholas said. And I'm not, I'm not like a huge golf person, but this quote stuck out to me because whenever you hear somebody who's like the best at something tell you one of their tips for how they do it, you, you probably want to pay a little bit of attention. And this is what he said about the way that he gets equipped for the Masters. He says, at a tournament, I don't really spend a whole lot of time there on the range or even on the putting green or anything like that. When I get to a tournament site, I feel like my game should be ready. That's one of the reasons why I don't play as many weeks as a lot of these guys do, because I spend a lot of time practicing at home. I do most of my preparation at home. Once I'm at a tournament site, I'm there just to find my rhythm, tune up a little bit, and get myself ready to go play the next day. I love that picture, because it's not when I get to the Masters, or if that moment presents itself, then hopefully I'm ready. It's I'm going to get ready before I go out into my day, So that when I get there, I'm already equipped. He says, uh, Paul says at the end of verse 8 that when we do this, it is good and profitable to men. Now you can imagine this is true, right? Just imagine if you have a spouse, picture picture husbands. Let's talk to the men for a minute. You wake up in the morning, you talk to God, and you resolve to grow in good works towards your wife. Just even for a day. No matter what else comes up during the day, no matter what kind of anxieties happen, no matter what kind of attitudes you get, you speak to God and he says, hey, you can do this for your wife today. Now, if you grow in good works towards your wife, that is probably going to be profitable to her, isn't it? And if it's profitable to her, guess what? 
that's going to be profitable to you too. And this is the mindset that God wants us in all the time with everybody that we encounter. What would it look like to grow in good works towards your spouse? To grow in good works towards your kids? To grow in good works towards your coworkers, towards your staff, towards your volunteers? What would it look like to grow in good works? You know, Paul doesn't only give us that positive instruction, but he also gives us some warnings in the next few verses Because along with maintaining good works, there are things that we need to reject that threaten to interrupt what God has asked us to do. That threaten to break up the curiosity that we may create in other people because of our own negative behavior. So this is what he says in verse 9. Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. So just as we resolve to grow in good works, we must reject divisive habits. You see, Paul is painting a picture for Titus of how he needs to help the church basically get in line. And if we're maintaining good works together, if we have elders, as he discussed in chapter 1, who are leading us faithfully, then we should have unity in the body and the blood of Christ so that we go forth into the world with a unified testimony of his love. But if we're spending all our time on foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, well, just imagine this. If we spend all of our time arguing about theology, not not just discussing theology, because Paul said himself in chapter 1-9 that for elders, they must be able to hold fast the faithful word as they've been taught, that they may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who are contradictory. All right, so sound doctrine is important. But if we spend all of our time arguing theology to the point that even as followers of Christ, We're actually angry with each other. We divide from each other. We speak negatively about each other. Then who, looking from the outside, would want to believe your theology anyway? If you say, God is love and God is good and you should visit my church, we fight a lot. (laughs) Hey, I, you know, I have enough places in my life with negativity. I think I'll stay home from your church. (laughs) And so Paul tells us to watch out for these things. You know, he's, he, he's pointing out real things that were happening at the time, arguing about genealogy, strivings about the law. And, and you know, I don't know too many people that argue about genealogy and say, well, my grandpa's better than your grandpa. You know, I, I guess on the playground we used to say, my dad could beat up your dad. If you remember those conversations, let's see, what does it say here? They were unprofitable and useless. <laughs> I don't think I'm any further in my life today because of whose dad could beat up whose dad, right? But that's how goofy Paul's telling them it is. That's how useless it's going to be. Because we all have decisions to make every day on how we spend our time. There are always more things that are asking for your time, pulling from your time. And every one of us has to decide, what's the best use of my time? What are the most important things I can do? What's going to have the greatest impact? What's going to be the most valuable for my family? What's going to have the, the highest return on my investment? And this stuff isn't it. This is a waste of time that not only keeps us from acting kindly and generously towards others, but it actually breaks up the family of God and hurts our witness towards the people that we care about. So not only do we reject divisive habits, but we also need to reject divisive attitudes. Verses 10 and 11 say, Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Now this is a hard one. Because to have a divisive attitude, you have to have a divisive person. But Paul is being very clear. 
It's not the first time someone opposes you, you just kick them out. Right? He indicates right away that there's been a first admonition, there's been a second admonition. There are attempts at reconciliation, attempts at unity, trying to get each other on board. But if it continues, the divisiveness is so damaging to the body of Christ and the world's understanding of his love that we just can't put up with it. You can imagine this if you've ever sat in on a team meeting where maybe there's nine or ten people and just about everybody is on the same page with what the goal is and how to get there, the value that it's going to have, except maybe like one or two people. One or two people who are just kind of hung up. They just don't like the idea, but this is we're, we're talking about more than a dissenting opinion here. We're talking about a person who just doesn't like you. They don't like your leadership. They don't like the way you look. Whatever it is, they've decided, if this was your idea, I don't like it, and I'm going to get in the way. And so they're divisive, and they bring the meeting to a halt, and the project stalls out. You see, what Paul is telling Titus is that leadership means you don't stand for a divisive attitude. Leadership means you don't let the body or the team come to a stop in maintaining good works because of somebody who's just hooked on being divisive. So he offers the first and second admonition, but after that, it's time to move on. I've, I've had this sort of experience in my life working with uh, somebody who was over me in leadership, and we sat through a team meeting where, where I apparently came across as divisive. And I, I didn't mean to, and I didn't realize I was, but I was that guy, I guess. Everybody else thought this whole thing made sense, and I'm sitting here like, yeah, but what about this and what about this and i don't even think we can handle that and so in my problem solving kind of a brain i'm i'm bringing those things out into the room and i think that i'm helping but my leader took me aside after the meeting got a one-on-one and gave me my first admonition he said i'll, I'll be honest with you man I'm, is, is something going on it just seemed like there was a little bit of a of a negative attitude going on in there and, and I, I hadn't caught it myself at all, right? Sometimes we're blind to this, and it was so valuable because then I could say, well, well I, didn't, I didn't mean to be. I just, I, you know, I just kept seeing these things that, that seemed like they could go wrong, and I thought as long as we see them, we can prepare for them, and then we can handle it, right? He said, well, you need, to, you need to say that in the meeting. Hey, I think this could work, so let's just work on a couple of these pieces instead of just bringing up the problems. Well, since my goal was unity and his goal was unity, that was a good conversation. It was a little bit hard to swallow, but that's a good lesson in humility. And the next team meeting that we had went very smoothly. We worked out a couple of the problems. A couple others didn't even come up, and the whole project went off without a hitch. But you can imagine how different that might be if when he sat me down, folded my arms, said, well, I, I mean, I just think the whole thing is stupid. And I... I think we shouldn't do it at all because of this, this, and this. And, and I don't care what your solutions are. I, I don't want any part of it. Now, think for yourself. Would you bring me to the next team meeting? I wouldn't bring me. You see, that's what Paul's talking about. The person who folds their arms, digs in, and says, I don't care. I'm just here to be divisive. That person is warped. That person is sinning. They're making their own choice. They are self-condemned. And so Paul is telling Titus, try to bring them with you, but at some point, you have to move on. Why? Because we have to resolve to maintain good works. We've got to resolve to grow in that way. And after we reject things, then the final part of our training is to repeat. To do it again and again and again. To be intentional about it. 
Because, you know, a lot of us, whether you like to golf, whether you like to play basketball, whatever it is, we're always looking for, like, what's that, what's that one secret that if I just hear this one thing or learn this one thing, all of a sudden my golf game will, will massively improve. My shot percentage will go way up. If I just, there's 1999 for that DVD and then I'll shoot like Michael Jordan? That's what I need. We're always looking for that quick fix that will just get us there. But Paul's reminding us of the reality that it, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of intentionality. It takes a lot of repetition. The best shooters spend all day in the gym just shooting over and over. The best golfers, like the Golden Bear said, does a lot of practice at home. And Christians, followers of Jesus, who want the people around them to see his love, just got to do this over and over. As Paul closes the book, I kind of imagine that as Titus is reading this, and again, this, this may just be my own, my own attitude, but all through here, Paul keeps talking about good works in the whole letter. Titus, raise up some leaders. Make sure they have good works under control. Watch out for those false teachers, those false teachers, because they do bad works. But you do good works. Make sure everybody's qualified for good works. Have zeal for good works. Maintain good works. And it's like, Paul, man, this letter's only like a page and a half. Like, I, I get it. I get it. Isn't there anything else you want to tell me? And I'm kind of feeling, you know, as you read through the end of this, okay, here we go. Send Artemis to you, Tychicus. All right, we're kind of wrapping this thing up. And let our people also learn to maintain good works. I think right there, when it's like you've got to just get it one more time, I take a deep breath. Okay, Paul. Okay, I hear you. I will. You know, William Carey was a man who understood what it meant to severely inconvenience himself to commit to growing in good works for the sake of drawing others closer to God. Today he's known as the father of modern missions, but in his life he spent 41 years without any kind of break in India reaching people for Christ. And it's fascinating because by the end of his time there, the number of people that he had actually converted to Jesus was relatively low, but because of the inroads that he made and some of the ways that he developed to do cross-cultural ministry, he has become known as the father of missions and has impacted hundreds and thousands of other missionaries through the years. But there was something he said that I found really fascinating and I think is really helpful for us. Because often when we're thinking about these things, we want to know, well, what is God's will for my life? Where would God ask me to serve? What kind of good works should I be maintaining? Where do I even start? William Carey once said that if you want to know God's will, all you need is an open Bible and an open map. Now for him, that meant fold that map open, look all around and ask God, where in the world would you have me serve? And you know, you may not be called to India, but you are here. And maybe God has put you in Cincinnati for a reason. Maybe you are in that office for a reason. Maybe you are in that family for a reason. Maybe you're in that family because you are the one that God wants to grow to be the person who will resolve to show his love to family members that honestly don't seem like they deserve it. But because you are someone who understands what we talked about last week, that even when you were God's enemy, he was kind to you. 
And that there are people who are around you that are still in that place of being God's enemy. And if they see his kindness through you, they may just start to wonder if he might love them too. It may be that God has put you in that office for a reason, in that family for a reason, in this city for a reason. Not just when the opportunity arises, but by time in prayer and time in God's word to create the opportunity to show the love of Jesus to the people around you. And so here's what I would encourage you to do this week. Maybe you even do it today, but sometime this week, in the morning, talk to God about all of the people that you know you will encounter that day. I'd even tell you, get a piece of paper and write down their names. Pray through something like the fruits of the Spirit. And just ask God for each of those people, God, how could I show love to this person today? God, which one of these people needs my generosity today? God, who on here is not feeling peace, is not feeling patience? Who needs just a little bit more of that from you that can come through me today and resolve to grow in good works towards the people that you see every day? I started praying that way for my family, for, for people that I work with, for people that I play basketball with. And I'll tell you what, it, it really shifts your mindset. In fact, that's, that's kind of how the, the conversation with the HVAC guy even happened, because I was just praying through the day. And, and since then, we've actually had a couple follow-up texts, and, and it's, just, it's one of these things where it's like I, I was never planning that. I was hoping he would just come say the furnace is fine and leave. But when you open your mind to what God wants to do, when you make your heart available to maintain the things that he might be thinking about, you'll be amazed at what he presents to you. So let's resolve, let's reject, and let's repeat. And let's encourage each other as we do this in the name of Christ and for the glory of God. Because you know what? Ron decided... To be Christ to me. And I have frequently said that, man, I just want to be Ron to somebody else. And you know what? I don't know if anybody in here is named Ron, but you all have names. And can you imagine years from now who might stand up and say, because of that person, I want to be Christ to somebody else. Because I saw him through them. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we are humbled by your presence, we are blessed by your Spirit, and I just ask, Lord, that as you have been working in this place this morning, as we have sung your glory and your praises, and, and Lord, as we have studied your word together, Lord, I know that you are laying names on the hearts of people in this room right now, or people that we may not have thought about before, but that we're thinking in just in this moment, you know what, maybe that's the person who needs to see a little generosity from me, a little kindness from me, so that they might see who you are, God. Lord, I pray that right now your spirit would solidify those names in our minds, that they would not slip out, but that, God, we would have the opportunities and the courage to follow up on it, to maintain good works towards others, that they might see the victory that we have in you that is available to them. God, we ask all of this in the glorious name of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Hey, thank you for coming this morning. I'm really glad that you are here. If you have questions about the message or about Horizon or would just like to get to know us better or let us get to know you, we'd love to meet you in the hearth room, which is the third door down the hall on your left. Thanks for being here.